Here in Australia, we are using depression quest, which is a, it's a form of uh, behavioral activation introduced online. So it, it's not only the negative side or, you know, the negative impact that can have um, for a minority of users. It can be quite beneficial for some others. The question is, do we have policies to regulate it? You're listening to SpartyCast. Hello and welcome to SpartyCast, episode 37, the first episode we're recording in 2022. That means we did 12 per year in 21. Wow. I'm not sure we're going to hit that same rate because we're moving toward TikTok a little more and trying to, I don't know, get a, a viral meme about the metaverse to hit the TikTok sphere or not. I mean, we, we're, we're still doing edutainment. I'm still going to put these podcasts out, but I want to expand our reach and also give our students a little bit of freedom um, on the creative side of media production. Stay tuned for that. But today we have a, a somewhat typical, you know, podcast episode, but also atypical for a few reasons. Our guest is coming from Australia, perhaps geographically the furthest guest I've had. He's my uh, longtime collaborator, Vasilios Stavropoulos, and he is a psychological researcher, a statistician. He does avatar and game research. That's how we connected in the first place. He's on the kind of problematic uses side, right? And um, despite the fact that I focus on positives in my research, you know, the benefits of gaming or VR or avatars. Um, I also am very concerned about the negative outcomes. And, and the biggest one of gaming and VR that I think is valid is overuse. I don't call it addiction. Many of my colleagues are reluctant to use that term because um, it's very different than a chemical addiction. You don't go through withdrawal, etc. But but overuse is certainly a thing. Uh, my my kids certainly overuse and they're in the background playing games here. So hopefully I don't have to yell at them to be quiet <laughs> again. We recently co-edited a special issue on user avatar bond, risk and opportunities in gaming and beyond. And I think <laughs> we talked a little bit more about opportunities in this special issue here. I'm sharing my screen if you can see this. Of course, we tried to be balanced. And, and I think that's very important in our in our field where we're talking about a potentially concerning subject. Vasilios does a great job in this episode of describing the nuance in the effects of gaming and, and connections with avatars. It's not like, you know, everybody has uh, has depression and anxiety because they game, right? That's, that is a broad stroke conclusion that is very inaccurate. But some people do have negative uh, outcomes of gaming to a much greater extent than others. And so it seems like his research is oriented toward identifying who's at greatest risk and, and then hopefully um, how to protect them. We talk about the project he's working on right now, where he's collecting tons of data from people trying to create a cyber phenotypes, which are essentially like a, a profile, a psychological profile based on the uh, media technology they use that could predict health markers of, um, you know, concerning health markers like depression. And he also describes some of the individual differences that might relate to problematic game uses and the regulations that we might use to 
address some of these concerns. In the background, we also played around with Engage, which is a VR platform. Uh, if I can go on a, a minor rant right now, I'm super excited about the potential for VR in education. And I'm teaching my first class about VR in VR right now. My students uh, all have gotten or are in the process of getting VR headsets. We're lending out headsets for those who don't have them. And we're meeting in a virtual environment, Engage VR is this platform that allows us to kind of spawn objects and watch 3D videos together and move into different spaces together and tell stories and record ourselves in three dimensions. It's pretty cool. I think it's going to work well for this class, of course, because it's about VR. But I also imagine a great potential for VR in education in general. But I think there's this confound, um, this erroneous uh, kind of perceived relationship between education quality and physical co-location. We don't need to be physically co-located for me to pay attention to you. Um, and attention is the currency of the realm. It, it, that is what makes for high quality education, right? Paying attention, giving feedback to your students, helping them along in their learning processes. I think I can do that personally much better in VR than I certainly could in recorded videos and probably over Zoom as well. Probably the, the best solution is a mixture of video and VR. If we can find ways of making those experiences better than face-to-face, -face, uh, we could open up virtual education for a much broader audience. But um, <laughs> that's not the point of today's episode. Enjoy the uh, conversation with Vaz, my friend, and hopefully you will get some great content from us here in 2022 at SpartyCast. Hello to a special episode of SpartyCast to Vasilios Stavropoulos, my colleague and friend from Victoria University in Australia. How are you? I'm very nice seeing you and thank you for inviting me. Of course, of course. We've got <coughs> Uh, some of our lab members here to kind of keep things, I don't know, fresh and exciting. It's a rare opportunity that we can experiment with new modalities. And I guess that's what 2022 is going to be all about. During this podcast, we're going to jump into Engage Together, which is a VR platform and I'm using it for my class. So hopefully we can <laughs> make that work technologically. But before that, let's just do some of the the regular old podcasty talk stuff. Vasilios, how do we know each other? How do we know each other? I, I guess um, our research interests intersect. So you are you're studying virtual reality, the user avatar bond and presence um, from the perspective of opportunities. You are the optimistic one. And I'm doing the same thing from the other way around. I mean, as in risks that such technologies or such media may bear with. In, in the context of internet gaming disorder primarily and also digital phenotyping. How one's behavior online can tell us things about how they are in their real lives and whether that can provide, can provide some information about their potential mental health diagnosis or status. I guess this is how we know each other. Eh? This is, this is, yeah, yeah. Certainly not, not unusual or disordered for me to be sitting here with this massive device on my head uh, which i don't have where i am you don't but you do have uh you do have the software so we'll, we'll yes, try it out yes. shortly <laughs> you uh, generously paint me as the optimistic one 
Um, but I think it's, it's very important that you and I have worked together on kind of showing different perspectives on the same phenomena. So I say mm-hmm. like, oh, avatar identification, it's really great for, you know, enhancing the experiences that people have in VR, um, but it might be concerning too. So what, what might be concerning about it? Can you go into a little more detail? So what we do know, I mean, I guess there's a continuum of, of the outcomes of uses of new technologies in our lives, the positives and the negatives. When it comes to the user avatar bond, what we do know from evidence around the world, cross-sectional and longitudinal, is that the stronger the connection is for a small proportion of gamers might be related with a moderate and up to a high effect size with a risk for internet gaming disorder symptoms, which is a new diagnosis in DSM-5, a conditional diagnosis in DSM-5 in the appendix, a diagnosis requiring further study, and a formal diagnosis in ICD-11 as gaming disorder. So what we do know is that this bond, this connection with the various aspects, it includes identification, I am who the avatar is, um, idealization, my avatar could be my, my ideal self, who I would like to become, immersion, the avatar's needs can be experienced as my real life needs and prioritized to being hungry or sleepy or needing to do things. And repression, which is a very interesting one, the avatar can do their things that I'm not allowed to do in my real life. Um, these aspects of the connection seem to engage some gamers who have, of course, predisposing factors into a process of developing disorder, gaming disorder symptoms. Yeah, yeah. I think you're running engaged there. There's a checkbox on the first. Yes, screen. I am. Can you turn off the music, please? Or, or you know what? Why, yeah. I mean, why don't we try to pop in there? Welcome, welcome to the world of uh, of engaged, though. Oh my Found god! Found you guys. Found you. All right, <laughs> Basilios, are you? Uh, you found us. Is it loading? Yes, yes, yes. And I put the password. It great. Close fast. Yeah. So we're watching a video. So tell us about this um, series of videos that that you have. We are actually studying the the user avatar bond as a continuum, as I, as I said before, from the perspective of risks and opportunities. And the idea is that this bond can carry valuable information about who the user is or may be in their real lives. So we are actually using psychometric questionnaires, depression, anxiety, well-being, user avatar bond, psychometrically validated questionnaires. And then we also assess um, study participants regarding their physical activity with Fitbits, they wear Fitbits and we assess their sleep, active minutes, steps, how they are in their real lives. And concurrently, I think I can see you and I can see my video. I'll pause it. What we are suggesting or what um, some basic literature has started suggesting is that the connection with one's connection with their avatar, independent of the context, can give us, can provide us information about who the user is or can be in their real lives. So their mental health, their physical activity, and even how they are using digital media. So what we are doing is we are trying to translate the way one experiences their connection with their avatar into this type, into such type of information, mental health, physical activity, and uh, digital media users. And how do we do that? We, we collect concurrently information through three uh, different channels. One is psychometric surveys, 
The second is, as I said, Fitbits, actigraphy trackers. And the third is um, a mobile monitoring app designed by the University of Melbourne, which, um, which assesses screen on, screen off time uh, anonymously. Of course, uh, number of texts, calls, apps that one is using. Um, and we are trying to see if there are, that's a very nice <laughs> room. Uh, and we try to see if there are types, we call them phenotypes, profiles of the way one experiences their bond with their avatar that can convey or translate into information about their mental health, physical activity, and digital media users. And we do feel that such information is indeed uh, provided. Okay, that, that's quite a large project. Um, yeah. It sounds, it sounds like you've got a ton of data, and I know you're an expert uh, statistics, you know, psychometrics researcher. Are there any to kind of merge the us being in this environment, the virtual environment together? Are there any videos like sh which which of these would you suggest I play the the head of the if game? If you play the ahead of the game, that's yeah. exactly what the project is about. Okay, great. And hopefully this loads. And now, oh my gosh, we're in it together in three D. Martian like surface. Let's, yeah, yeah. These 360 videos are not working out. <laughs> um, they were all coming up sideways. So you're collecting data from, a, it must be a large number of people. 500 we need. 500. They're all using yeah. Fitbits. You're measuring all their, their avatar connections, their gaming use. Uh, and also they carry this um, mobile monitoring application called Aware, which assesses their mobile users. But you know everything is optional, so one can can elect to participate in one part of the study and not in another. Sure. The whole idea is to be able to translate information across these three channels, and to identify users who might benefit and users who might might be compromised and their differences. Because at the end of the day, as with psychological treatment, it's not whether a treatment works or not; it's for whom it works the best. And the same with virtual reality. It's not whether it's a good or a bad thing. It depends on many, many other conditions. As I said before, who the user is, who the person is, their real-life context, and how that might be pushing them either to escape or to engage more with a, a virtual context. Do you like Mars? We like Mars. We like Mars. So, so I'm thinking, okay, so engage more. Uh, yeah, that's what engage is trying to do is get us to engage. And um, I put up this virtual treadmill and standing desk. I mean, wouldn't that be funny if you sit there in your chair working in VR, but you do it in a virtual treadmill desk, which is presumably healthy. <laughs> and psychologically, maybe you feel like you're doing something good for yourself or for your avatar. Your avatar might be fit. Uh, but of course, in, in reality, you're just sitting there. What are some of the ways that you think a platform like this? Oh, and, and also I wanted to show you here. Wait, where'd you go? Oh, there you are. <laughs> you're in Mars. I'm, uh, I'm avoiding you. <laughs> but you... I will come back. Let me come back. No worries. Uh, walk around. You can look for objects. And you can spawn many types of digital objects. There are vehicles and animals. Let's throw a bat there. There's a bat flying on Mars. Um, wait, it's not, my bat's not flying. 
<laughs> it's just standing there. Go, go, fly, bat, fly. Be free, be free. So what do you think? What do you think about this kind of software and the potential to use it for good? Do you think it's going to lead to net benefits or net costs. I mean, people probably ask you all the time, are, are games are games bad for us? Are games good for us? I get that question often. Are avatars bad or good? So what do you think in this context? How could it be good or bad? I will start with um, just to counterbalance your optimism and your positive positivity around the medium. I will start with the negatives. So what we do know is that cyber relationship or relationships or cyber experience tend to cultivate a different type of social skills. So, you know, facial expression, uh, body language awareness, all these can be minimized, especially if someone is in earlier developmental stages. Because, you know, the skill set of understanding, reflecting how facial communication, nonverbal, um, can impact communication with others is, is significant. So I guess for, for younger users, who might engage disproportionately or exclusively with online media and cyber relationships to interact with others, that might have an impact or might reduce their capacity, level of awareness in terms of uh, interpersonal nonverbal communication in real life. But that's one side of things. That makes me want to come stand uh, and, and look you face to face. Because maybe, you know, with the social norms of standing near someone and speaking to them will go away if, uh, if we're always in avatars and people are, uh, well, certainly if we're in our space suits. So why don't we go somewhere that's a little bit more, I don't know, conducive. Oh, I like this one. Um, let's go to the library. Don't worry, we won't disturb anyone. And, <laughs> oh, I actually, I read a really interesting study about um, the social norms of people communicating in a virtual library versus in a virtual cafe. I don't think they measured how loud people spoke with each other, but there were definitely social norm differences. Are you? Uh, okay, Zach's here with us. I am in. I can see, I can see, I could see Zach. Oh, there yes. you are. Oh, you're in the chair. Got it. Yeah. Okay, and yes. Get closer to Zach. Zach, here's your task. Spawn a bunch of objects that make us laugh. But I'm going to sit here next to Basilios like a good interviewer there. <laughs> it's like we're having a library conversation. Can I go on the positive side too? Please. Okay. So what we also know is that people who suffer from certain types of symptoms like ASD, autism spectrum characteristics, mm. can benefit from cyber relationships. Because there they can counterbalance their deficits in body language and non-facial expression in their real lives. Mm -hmm. And that gives them confidence. And there is a series of studies which suggests that engagement of ASD individuals with um, VR can be beneficial. Or they, it can be less traumatic for them or less, um, you know, impact them less in a negative way. So it always depends on the person, who the person is. I would dare to say that, you know, once again, a continuum. There is a, a series of um, training games or training VR, which has been very, very effective in terms of the way people feel. Here in Australia, we are using Depression Quest, which is a, it's a form of um, uh, behavioral activation introduced online. So it, it's not only the negative side or, you know, the negative impact that can have 
for a minority of users. It can be quite beneficial for some others. The question is, do we have policies to regulate it so that we can direct those nice cow? <laughs> you bring the animals next to me, eh? <laughs> yeah, that's a utterly hilarious. But um, so regulations, yeah. Do you think uh, regulation can work in this domain? It, it will definitely work better than being unregulated. And of course, I don't believe, and that's not scientific, it's just my personal opinion. I don't believe that people who engage with VR, who create VR, do it to make others addicted or to make others abuse it. Everyone does it because they, you know, they are creative, they want to, to, to create something which will benefit the public. That's my sense. The question is, with policies, can we direct these capacities um, to the interest of the public, let's say education, treatment, agoraphobia, or suffers from anxiety disorders? Can we expose them virtually to things which are afraid so that they, we can reduce avoidance in real life? Yeah. Desensitize them virtually first. Uh, I guess all, all these things are possibilities. The question is, can we introduce conditions which will direct creators to more beneficial uses or consumption of such, of such services and also enforce them to share data regarding the abuse of virtual reality. Because I guess some, some gaming providers, some gaming companies are aware that some users are, you know, can be excessively active online, which means obviously that they cannot have a, a healthy life offline. Yeah, yeah. So do you think, so what types of policies do you think would work, right? Like in China, we see a restriction on the number of hours that children can use games. Uh, is, is that, you think, effective psychologically or? I think I wrote something about that on, um, on the Journal of Behavioral Addictions. It was a commentary last month. Uh, no, I don't believe that, that this will work. It, it, it doesn't acknowledge individual differences. The same way, like, the same way that the Cinderella law in uh, South Korea didn't work. And we had, um, you know, gamers pretending to be adults to, to get passes and be able to, to consume their games. And, Cinderella you know, Law, could... like, uh, like Midnight? Yes, yes, that was the case there. I never they didn't heard allow that. That's good. They didn't, it's true. And they changed the law this year. But I do feel that laws in Belgium and the Netherlands, which ban uh, gaming companies from, uh, loot box, from using loot boxes, are useful. I also feel that you know the public needs to be aware about the mechanisms that virtual reality producers are using to engage them. We have gaming production companies here in Australia which are using algorithms to moderate, to modify the interface of the experience of a virtual context so that it can best engage in a certain individual. It's like you have data points with algorithms you can predict what is more engaging for the user, what is less engaging. You put that in the recipe and you create something which is massively, massively more absorbing. So I think, I think users need to know these things. Here's what I see as somewhat of the irony. In a purely capitalistic system, we create incentives to uh, capture as much of the attention economy as possible. Right, like these games, if they're beholden to their stockholders or you know whoever their constituents are, the the owners of the company to to profit, then that profit-driven motive essentially validates any approach to capturing users, regardless of their health. Kind of like big tobacco companies. My students reminded me the other day that. 
doctors used to endorse certain can uh, certain tobacco brands <laughs> they would say oh you know like the, these brands are you know i uh, you know i i endorse camels it's good for losing weight or for something or other like so i'm playing devil's advocate here against myself in a way and saying well maybe certain games are or you know within a capitalistic system they all have an incentive to capture our attention using these algorithms, using mechanisms like loot boxes, which are essentially taking advantage of what operant conditioning, right? To get people to come back and click on the Skinner uh, box bar for the cheese, right? If that's the case, then is there any solution <laughs> like in, in our modern capitalistic market-driven world? Because even if people know they're still, they're not going to be able to fight them because psychologically it's, influencing them so strongly i'm not an expert in uh, in policies i'm just a psychologist who studies you know the impact and how things can relate to one's mental health and sure. their well-being um but i can say one thing i think everything depends on on whether we look into the short-term benefit the short-term outcome or the long-term outcome so if a game is absorbing and produces more you know income for the provider in the short term that's something positive. But if in the longer term, um, it deregulates people's lives in ways that they cannot be productive for the broader community, that's important too. And it may have, um, if you put in, you know, things together and you weigh them, it may be way more significant. So I guess long term and short term make the difference. And also, there is a, the common theme of conflict of interest. You talked about doctors who, you know, um, Endorsed uh, tobacco. They supported yeah. uh, tobacco producers or tobacco companies. Is there a conflict of conflict of interest? And and the same with with scientific community and researchers. Can we be objective if we receive funding from certain sources? It's this old discussion which comes again and again and again across different fields. Uh, objectivity and what is science? Science is empirical evidence. We put a question. We check the evidence. We say this is it. And in my opinion, and this is something that I can safely talk about based on empirical evidence, virtual reality is not only good or only bad. It can be both things. We have individual differences. We know that who the user is, where the user is, and where virtually they are, and with whom plays a role about the outcome. And this is what we need to, um, to focus on, to identify parts of the community that will benefit, or activities in the community that will benefit the public and activities in the community that might compromise the public. Our job, our aim as researchers is to provide the evidence about certain directions and the job of politicians or regulators is to use this empirically produced evidence to, to magnify the benefits and minimize the impact on the public. You know, it's not a yes or no answer. It's not black or white. It's everything is gray, I guess. Am I talking too much, Robbie? No, you're not at all. I'm taking some notes here for the episode notes. And I think that that's the title right there. The answer is gray. <laughs> we need more data um, and kind of more powerful statistical models to figure out exactly who will benefit and who will uh, suffer the, the negative consequences. Is that but a good guess- summary? I think it's a good summary, but I would I would add one thing. I think we already have data. Mm. What we need to do is to, based on the data that we already have, 
to promote the right policies and also produce more more information. That's that's I guess what we need to do. And I'm sorry for my son screaming. No worries. Um, he's seven you, months old. I'm sorry, I, ass- I, I assume there's someone in there helping him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. He's not he's not neglected for me to participate in this session. But let me go back to the other idea. I guess the way, the pathway to address that is through investigating what we call cyber phenotype mm. or digital phenotype. So what is that? The same way that real-life behavior can, can inform about one's mental health state, so reduced sleep, uh, reduced appetite, loss of interest into other activities, blah, 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 could be signs of depression. The same way one cyber activity or cyber engagement can provide us the phenomenology of how they are in their real lives. And can we decode things? This is what we are, we are trying to do here, to identify the profiles of people based on their cyber activity, which could have these different outcomes. Based on cyber activity, you're trying to figure or out... cyber behavior, yes. I'm trying to figure out depression and anxiety. Yes, for instance, I believe you know well CAs and you know growth mixture models and all these things which are enhanced with algorithms and stuff. For the audience, there are some statistical ways of identifying homogenous subgroups within a bigger population. So when you, when you have, let's say, 500 participants being assessed about their relationship with their avatar, their mental health, how they they are using their mob with objective data and also with objective data actigraphy, how they are in their physically, sleep and physical activity, then you can identify homogenous groups based on these these three areas and match them. You can say the sleepless ones or those who sleep disturbances tend to have this profile in terms of the way they use their mob or tend to have this profile in terms of the way they associate with their, their avatar. If you want to produce more engaging applications to treat those who are more depressed, you know that, let's say, those who are more depressed tend to idealize their avatar more. So go there. So cyber activity could be surveys of how they feel about their media use, as well as kind of like time of use, amount of use, that kind of stuff. It could also be objective data observing them, you know, you know, um, screen on screen of time applications. And then there is a new, a new direction. You may, you may have heard it, you may have not. They call affective computing. So what they actually do is whether, whether the pixels in one's VR can relate with, uh, and the way they are distributed, studied with algorithms can relate with how the user feels. There are many, many interesting papers in this area, affective computing. The, the name of the first author usually is Yanakakis, but his lab is producing a lot of that. So there is a, a huge wave of scholars, researchers, mental health practitioners who are interested in decoding one's digital engagement to understand or to, to diagnose within brackets the user in their real lives. And if you ask me if I'm convinced that there is um, there is light at the end of the tunnel, yes, I do believe that there is there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think we can know things because statistics has been that advanced that allows us to profile people and also to translate one profile into another so that we can, um, as I said before, be able to match technology with the user's profile to the benefit of the user. Interesting. Very interesting. Let's see how the world is going over in Engage. Engage. You put hippos there and cows. 
<laughs> oh yeah nice is that a is it a a beef bochin i have absolutely no idea we're in this library and i believe so strongly vasilios that doing education in vr is going to be way better than doing it in 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 zoom if i can take my class on a field trip Pick, pick a pick an exciting place. How about just the ocean? Let's go to the ocean. Shallow ocean. Let's go under the under the sea. Whoa. This feels a little scary to me, and I'm not even in a headset. But I mean, going back to what you were saying, it's these three basic processes that all humans um, use to relate with VR. Identification, I identify with something there. Projection, I project things to objects in VR or to VR itself and internalize. I tend to internalize my experience there in a way that eventually defines me. I guess these, these three main channels are quite significant. Absolutely. Zachary, can you please bring a fish? There's a shark in the park. Entertainment and escapism. Um, in some contexts, uh, they're good for eudaimonia, right? Like... Um, yeah, there's a big shark um, and they're fun and I play games with my kids, but there's this downside that, that we've talked about. Identifying when they can be good or bad is very important. Like reality, this whole, reality hits them. It does. Uh, they're home from school. <laughs> this whole metaverse thing, though, and the idea of doing stuff that's so game-like for our regular activities, I think it's going to make I think it's going to make these worlds even more complicated and maybe troubling, but hopefully not too troubling. Thank you so much for joining me today. And this was a bit of a different, a different format for the podcast. You know, a lot of visuals. We had we had some real time guests. Zach or anyone else here, do you have a, a last question for Vasilios? I guess I have one question. What do you expect to see in like the next five to ten years in your research? Where do you sort of want to be? Yeah, the answer is one closer to the truth, and 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 to maintain my integrity, <laughs> closer to the truth, as far away as possible from conflicts of interest. That would be ideal, and also merging interdisciplinary information because I think that this this leads us closer to the truth. So merging mental health, IT, communication, and seeing where the intersection leads us, and this is why I'm I'm actually collaborating with uh, with Robbie, <laughs> who has a different flavor of the people I'm usually working with. <laughs> He's yeah. more spicy. More... And, and collaborating with you, you know stats so well. So if anyone's going to be able to predict um, our real-world depression from our cyber behaviors, uh, I, I believe it's going to be you. Um, Hanji, Connor, do you guys have a question? No, I think thank you um, for this like very meaningful introduction of your research, and I'm really interested in mental health as well. Like you mentioned, how like cyberspace behaviors help people with Austin. I'm also wondering um, the after effects, like people in the VR, that might help them to coping with like their certain episodes. But after they're um, outside of the VR headset, does that reinforce their, like, for example, depression or autism, or would that, like, would that influence their um, reality behaviors as well? No, that's, a, that's a very, that's a great question. The idea is that people, while in VR, 
training um, games for health will have been able to develop skills that we'll use in their real lives. And we do know that through internalization, some call it protest effects, some others, you know, but, but people get affected actually. So a positive experience in VR can be exported to a positive, a more positive behavior outside it. And the other way around, I would dare to say. I guess I don't really have a question, but I, I wanted to thank you for talk. And I thought it was was very interesting. Um, especially I liked like sort of the, the nuance behind it, because I, I feel like um a lot of like the discussion that I've heard sort of as like a someone who's not too, too far into this research has been a lot like one-sided, like either um, sort of the positive effects or the negative effects. But uh, I think it's been a very interesting to sort of hear like sort of the back and forth between those two different sides. Connor, as a future game developer, do you feel uh, a little bit of a moral kind of pull in one or the other or many directions uh, based on these topics? I, I definitely um, want to look on the more positive side. Sort of my hope is that like I can, you know, try and like push it to be more positive, you know, but I think it's important to to just look at all the all the facts, all the different sides, just to kind of get a, a good perspective and a lot of knowledge, you know. Yeah, great. Improving the world, one virtual world or avatar at a time. That's our goal, right? Vasilios, thank you so much for joining us. I hope I hope your son hasn't missed you too much for this hour. <laughs> and crying. You can hear you cannot yeah. hear him anymore. Oh, finally he's asleep. You can have yourself um a, a morning coffee in peace, I guess. Another meeting after that. <laughs> and know that's exciting. Good luck with your Zoom fatigue. Thank you so much for this. And thank you for all your collaborations. It's been been great these past few years. It's been great too. Nice. Thank you. All right, we'll see you later. All right, that was our episode. I hope we made good on our promise of giving you a gray answer to the question of whether gaming is good or bad for us. Um, sorry, it's not a clear answer, neither black nor white, uh, nor up nor down, but somewhere in the middle, it is a medium answer. And <laughs> we, we study media, so I guess that's appropriate. I will leave you with that excellent, terrible joke. And I look forward to more episodes in the future. <laughs>